Hey guys, today I sit down and talk to Tom Bauer. Tom's obsession is dog sledding. How Tom got into dog sledding is an unbelievable story. We get into it fairly quickly in the podcast here. That has led to him leading a life of being obsessed and passionate about dog sledding. He's competed. He's helped other people compete. You can tell that he's super fired up in what he does. So this is another fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Hey, Tom. Hey. Thanks Love for coming. that in. intro. Yeah, it's not bad, hey? No, I I love guitar, yeah. Yeah, do you play guitar? I just uh, clunk around on it a little bit. My son Roy uh, is quite the guitarist, though, and um, I play around a little bit. Sure. So, here to talk about dog sled racing. What's the right term? Is it dog sled racing, or what would you call it? Um, Dog sledding is uh, something that a lot of people do. Not everybody races them. Sure. Some people just um, use them recreationally. Yeah. Some people use them for work. Um, homesteaders up in Alaska depend on them to do all kinds of different things. And uh, for me, it's just been an enjoyable ride, something that I just really get off on sharing uh, a connection with my mm-hmm. dogs. How did you get into it? Um, I accidentally completely accidentally fell into it i had a siberian husky and she had uh, two pups male pups that i had saved from a accidental litter she was bred by a hundred pound german shepherd and uh, he was all white so i had one that was white called uh, uh, johnny winter and i had one that was black and white i called him muddy waters mm. and um, chani was their mom and i would uh take them for runs every night they would chase my van up Mm -hmm. and down the j road up in the hyde area Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a three mile road about a mile and a half i'd turn around and head back for home and they'd chase me back and one night uh three deer got in between me and the dogs and the dogs chose the deer instead of the van Mm -hmm. and they disappeared and for three days, I was checking the humane shelter and putting posters out and stuff, and I just couldn't find them. And uh, after the third day, the shelter called and said, hey, we've got your dogs, huh. and we need $65 to, per dog um, for you to get them back. And I'm like, oh, man. We had just moved up to the UP. We were seven months pregnant with twins. I was doing three part-time jobs and had $150 in the bank. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my father-in-law said, uh, I know the sheriff. He might uh, work a deal with you. And so I called him up. I said, look, I... This is my situation. I'm broke. We were seven months pregnant with twins. I need to get my dogs back. Any way I can do that for free, mm-hmm. I'll do community service, anything you need. And he said, well, I got an idea. He said, 
He said, your dogs went down and opened up a guy's chicken coop and killed his 16 chickens. Mm. And he's looking for somebody to pay for those chickens. Mm. And uh, Leon's kind of a cantankerous fellow. And if you go down and you uh, make good with Mr. Wellman and he calls me and says, we're okay, you can hatch your dogs out for free. Mm. And so... I put my wife in the car. I don't know why she wanted to go for a ride. She was like huge with twins. And mm -hmm. uh, I stopped at this guy's house with my $150 in my pocket. And I knocked on the door and he came out and looked at me and swore up a storm. <laughs> I mean, he was, I don't know if he had Tourette's or what, but he, every third word was a swear word, made it sound like he was mad at me mm -hmm. but he wasn't really mad at me he just uh convinced me to come in and have cake and coffee with him and ma yeah and uh turns out he was a really cool guy he and ma were old dog sledders <laughs> and um we went in and had cake and coffee they showed us some photo albums of back in the day and uh he ended up giving me a harness and 50 of my 150 dollars back huh. and convinced me that i should be running those dogs on a sled attached to the sled so that they couldn't run away on me hmm. and go and eat people's chickens and i was like well i just don't really know anything about that i have no huh. idea and he says well if i bring you over a sled and a couple more harnesses would you give it a try? And I was like, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so he did. He brought me some homemade harnesses and a homemade sled. And um, a couple days later, I went to my wife and I said, you know, I'm going to have to go and try this because he's going to check back on me. And mm -hmm. I just feel bad if I told him I'd try it. And I didn't. Right. And uh, so I hooked up those dogs. He showed me, you put the one in the front, the older one, put the two in the back together with a line tied between the three of them and necklines tying them to the line and yeah. tug lines going from the line to their harnesses. And then that all ties into the sled. Mm -hmm. And so I got them hooked up to the sled and I was like, okay, now what? <laughs> They're all looking at me and they're like, now what? Yeah. And so I said, okay, I started running and they chased me and they pulled the sled past me and I hopped on and of course they stopped yeah. <laughs> and they looked back at me like, what are you doing? Come on. So I did that about eight times. I got down to the other end of our road where there was an old abandoned farm and the power line running away from the abandoned farm was the chicken trail. Sure. I had run around our roads in our houses and they got on this power line and ran to Leon's house. Well, when they figured out they were on the chicken trail, I didn't have to coax them anymore. They just hmm. took off and I fell over and almost lost that sled. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far they would have got without me, but now I know if you let a sled go, the dogs keep going until they get caught on something huh. and you walk. Right. Um, so I started driving that sled down to Leon's house and back and uh, became obsessed with what's next. Hmm. And, yeah. In that ride was pretty exciting, like that very first ride? That was, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It was an absolutely brand new 
thing that brought up brand new feelings, um, primordial feelings about, wow, this is what they did thousands of years ago. This is how they opened up Alaska and the Yukon. Mm -hmm. This is how miners got their stuff into their first mining camps. This is how mining camps were built. Right. And uh, all that's going through my head. And then it's just like, wow, these dogs, they're just doing this. I'm not making them do it. I don't have to convince them to do it. They just seem to love to do it. Right. And uh, it was just such, it was so natural. That Mm -hmm. was one of the things that really got me hooked on it is that it was just such a natural thing that, you know, I was a team with my dogs and we were out in the woods and we were moving and they liked it. I liked it. And it was just, uh, it was a cool um, combination of Mm -hmm. dog and man. So right away you had how, how many dogs that you went the first time? I had three dogs. Okay. So how quickly did you go from three to I'm all in, I've got nine dogs? (laughs) Well, as I got obsessed with this, I started to research it and found out that there was a lot of dog sledding going on in the Midwest. And um, in Wisconsin and Green Bay, uh, there was a, what they call a sprint race where these guys were going to be driving open class sprint race they were going to be driving as many dogs as they felt they could put on the front of a 25 pound sled Mm. and run as fast as they could get the dogs to do for 10 miles each day for Mm -hmm. two days Mm. so i thought i gotta go see this 22 dogs pulling a 25 pound sled how does a guy even control that right you know and so i talked leon into going with me yeah and i realized that i knew a guy actually in stevens point wisconsin named ted raider he was a uh, professor at uw stevens point mm-hmm. and i remembered that he had sled dogs and so i found him somehow and called him and asked him if he was actually going to that race and he said yeah i'm going to be in the eight dog limited class <laughs> um do you have any dogs ted you want to get rid of and he's like yeah, I have some calls. I'll bring them along. Charge you ten bucks, and so he brought some calls, and I brought, I bought two males, mm-hmm. and Leon actually bought a female. Cause me driving to Leon's house with dogs every day and having cake and coffee with him and Ma got Leon's juices flowing again. And at sixty-eight <laughs> years old, he was starting to think about having a little team to play around with, mm-hmm. you know, and so. I gave him one of my big males because I had just got two more males. And he yeah. had my big male, Muddy Waters, which he named renamed Buck. Sure. And he had this female, which he renamed Star. So he had Star and Buck. Yeah. And Star and Buck did what dogs do. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Star and Buck had 12 little bucklings, <laughs> star starlings. <laughs> yeah. What What year was this, roughly? God, this was, uh, my children were born in 1987, so this was 1987. Okay. 1986 going into 1987. Yeah. Yeah. So then you had a litter of new puppies between you and Leon. Well, Leon had this litter of puppies, and so Leon all of a sudden had a 14-dog kennel at 68 years old. He had told me previously he just was never going to do that again. Yeah. It was too much work. His neighbors would never put up with it. 
well, guess what happened to Leon? He got re-obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so Leon spent 10 years being a musher again. Yeah. He, uh, he trapped with them. And yeah. he actually even raced him. He was in the uh, midnight run race of the UP 200, I think in 1992 okay. or 91. And, is Leon still around? Uh, he, I believe Leon has passed away. Yes. Okay. He was living in Texas for a couple of years with his daughter and had cancer. Hmm. And um, I'm sure that Leon has passed on. Okay. I'm just curious if you've seen a transformation from the first time you met him oh. through the 10 years when he oh. got re-obsessed with the dogs in him as a person. He he told me after 10 years, um, I kept track of him. And, and after 10 years, we got together and he told me, you know, I'm getting out of it. I, you know, the dogs are getting old and I'm finding homes for the dogs. And um, he said, but I just want to thank you for getting me re excited about being a dog sledder he said when i didn't have dogs i sat in my house all winter and read my outdoor life and fur fin and feather and mm -hmm. all those magazines in my rocking chair and dreamed about the spring when the browns were going to start running right. and uh, he said once i got dogs he said the winter went by like i couldn't believe it was over already yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said there was 10 years of that again in my life and he just wanted to thank me for that so he he uh, it, it enriched his life yeah huh so from the litter of dogs that leon had did you, he kept those how did you then start progressing um well it was like okay sally just one more dog. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> then uh, one of the dogs that I bought from Ted Raider uh, bred my dog, Chani, yeah. which is my Siberian Husky. And she also had a litter. She had a litter of 12. One was stillborn. So we ended up with eleven, our own 11 puppy litter. Sure. And um, at that time, we had decided to... Uh, leave conventional living behind and hide. Mm -hmm. and we were living in a 22-foot teepee huh. that we had purchased earlier in life and sure. decided that now was the time to check it out. So uh, we found somebody in the Chocolate Township that had 80 acres and let us put our teepee up on their back 40 along the Chocolate River. Mm -hmm. And we spent that whole summer and most of the fall uh, living out there with our three months well when we moved out there our twins were three months old Unreal. and uh, mother-in-law was definitely not happy um, <laughs> but um, it was it was like utopia for us for that summer yeah. we had a nest egg saved up we didn't have to have jobs we spent all day just enjoying nature and uh, we traded putting in a organic garden and putting up firewood for the guy who let us camp out on his property and it was uh, it was a neat, neat time of our life. Yeah, we also had dogs. Yeah, <laughs> and our we went from five dogs at 11, 16 dogs while we were there. Yeah, uh, while we were living there, they were mostly you know puppies and weren't that much of a issue. Uh, but when we moved, we moved back up here over to this area. We moved into Tapiola. Yeah, and our kennel of. 16 dogs was uh, uh, it was a lot of fun we uh, 
also ran into some people up here and we found some Alaskan Huskies that added to our kennel. We were up to around 20. We hmm. moved over to the Dover location um, and uh, we were up to 28. Hmm. And then we moved out to um, Toybola and we bought a house in Toybola. Sure. And that's where we, where the obsession really took hold. I, I started racing. Mm -hmm. um, because while we were in the Dover location, I met a guy who I affectionately called Douglas Doug. Mm -hmm. His name is actually Doug Smith. He is uh, the uh, head wildlife biologist, wolf biologist in the um, yellow in the um, in the national forest, uh, um, and uh, he was a graduate student at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's out in Yellowstone right now running the wolf program. Huh. And um, but back then he just liked running dogs. And so he got a hold of me and asked me if he could run my dogs once in a while. And he came out and he would do that and have fun. And we uh, did a couple of things together. We actually um, uh, there was a gal that was trapping in a um, designated wildlife area. She was huh. um live trapping pine martin and mm -hmm. uh, doing a study on them and she had about 500 pounds of equipment that she would have to drag out about five miles into the bush with a sled and skis mm -hmm. and doug suggested that we use dogs and bring her stuff out there and so mm -hmm. doug and i transported all of her gear out uh, into the sylvania track uh, by dog sled yeah and uh so that was my first experience with actually um using dogs you know for work for that kind of a purpose rather than just recreational running them out in the woods and having fun with them right and in order when doug graduated in order for him to thank me he took me on a camping trip with uh, his friend john fisher who was a veterinarian and dog sledder up in cook county minnesota mm -hmm. and uh, there were three other dog sledders that were actually racing dog sledders they did mid-distance racing <laughs> um, like the at the time it was the bear grease 130 it was a three-leg race um, which was 130 miles long went overnight had a mat a minimum of seven hours of rest that you could had to take at the checkpoints mm -hmm. and um one of the guys had won that race a few times and my dogs were siberian cross recreational dogs six seven mile an hour dogs um, they'd start off with a burst and then they'd get down to six or seven miles an hour these guys had these athletic beautiful looking alaskan huskies huh that were tripping along at 11, 12 miles an hour with a full sled. Right. Didn't have any more dogs than I did. They just looked different. Longer legs, more athletic build, just wired tight, real uh, high-energy dogs. And they got to the campsite uh, quite a bit ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went for 30 miles. And uh, by the time I got there, they had already been reading Robert's service for a while and had killed the entire bottle of schnapps, mm -hmm. and, but had left me one swig. Sure. And so as soon as I got my camp set up, got my dogs bedded down, I went over and joined the little party that they had going there. And uh, I spent that whole night just picking their brains about what was it about their dogs that made them different from my dogs mm -hmm. and uh, what did it take to race 
a race like a 130 mile race yeah and uh, about the same time i had been getting to know some people in marquette a fellow named jeffrey mann was talking about starting this race that eventually became the up 200 sure and um, i was living in uh toybola at the time and uh I got a couple of dogs from Jeffrey, and I got some dogs from these guys in Cook County, Minnesota, and I added them to uh, a few of my dogs that I decided could be racing dogs. Mm -hmm. And um, I put together a nine-dog team and started training and entered the first UP200 in 1990. Hmm. That was your first UP200? That was the... That was, that was the first... And my first sure. UP 200 in 1990. Yeah. And um, it was uh, around 230 miles long. It mm -hmm. started out in uh, Marquette and ran over to Rapid River, which was about 105 miles straight through. Yeah. And then you went across the bay uh, to Escanaba hmm. and then out of Escanaba down the Ford River and jumped off the Ford River up to Gwyn. Mm -hmm. And then ran from Gwyn back over to Marquette. Okay. And um, it was uh, it was quite a ride. I just had never really imagined doing anything like that. But you talk about revving up the obsession. Yeah. I mean, just the tackling of something like that with the dogs mm -hmm. and the dogs themselves. We ran 105 miles straight through the night. Uh, to Rapid River, and uh, these dogs were tired, and I was tired. We took an eight-hour break, mm. and um, if you can imagine, I'm just really impressed with us because we made this 105 miles overnight. Yeah. But I get in there, and the veterinarians are looking at my dogs, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to rest for a little bit, and then run over to Escanaba, and they're like, well, this is your first race? I'm like, Yeah. He said, well, they, they look pretty good. You, you're doing pretty good for your first race. You got in here in pretty good time, but let's take a look at your dogs. And they started bringing me through my dogs. And this one had a little bit of diarrhea. And this one looked like it was pretty tired. And this one had some splits on its feet. Mm -hmm. and they started to go through all of the aspects of dog care mm -hmm. that you need to do to make sure that your dogs go down the trail functioning at peak performance athletic performance right and i just had never thought about a lot of these things and i ended up finishing in eighth place out of 22 people hmm. and it was mostly because these veterinarians took me under their wing yeah. and started teaching me about how to take care of my dogs on the trail mm -hmm. and uh another funny thing happened i met this guy named bob bright and he had a kennel over on Buck Lake um, by Waters Meat. Okay. And uh, he he had two handlers racing the race. Um, and he was he had just raced the Bear Grease 500 um, hmm. about a month before. And uh, so his handlers were running the UP 200. And I beat both of them. Hmm. And so he got to know me and he started feeding me yearlings out of his kennel to run and traded me dogs and uh, he ended up losing the opportunity to have his kennel on buck lake huh. and that's a whole story in itself he burned some bridges and uh, 
he proposed uh, bringing his dogs over to my place because mm-hmm. Toybolo was the perfect place. I was living way out in the country. Um, it was a great place to have dogs. We had a ton of snow, um, and we would team up. He'd bring his 90 dogs and add them to my 30 dogs, and he had all the equipment we needed, and all of a sudden I've got 120 dogs in my backyard. <laughs> Talk about obsess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so together you guys were working with these 120 dogs? Yep. Bob was, I'll call Bob my first real mentor in dog sledding. Yeah. Other than those first veterinarians. Yeah. But from a total kennel care, uh, race preparation, training, um, going out and doing races the right way. Um, Bob was a uh, Bob was a Marine, and he had a military mindset of how to uh, create a mission and complete the mission. Hmm. And everything was about doing it right. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was really, I think, a good thing that I ran into Bob at that time and learned how to do dog sledding the right way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's real important. And that's one of the things that really keeps me going is to try and promote our sport and about doing it the right way and teaching people. Um, And uh, that's a big part of my business, which is an adventure business that revolves around um, teaching people how to drive a dog team. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my, um, also my, um, my association with the mushers club at Michigan tech mm-hmm. and uh, teaching a group of students about what it's like to mush and go racing. Right. Yeah. I want to ask you two questions. One being what's the length of time it takes you to go from complete novice to obviously you're always going to keep learning, but you feel like you got a pretty good handle on this. Uh, the other question and you can tackle it either direction is where did the excitement really stem from? Was it like the thrill of it? Was it the challenge of working the dogs? Was it the competitive race side? I guess you can, yeah, tackle those either, either order. Well, I think the first one I'll address is your first question is from novice to being fairly, um, uh, proficient. Yeah. Okay. Um, I spent, uh, let's see, probably three or four years fooling around with dogs mm. and learning the hard way, um, yeah. reading as much as I could, talking to this person and that person, trying a few things, making a lot of mistakes. And um, it took me, I think, four years. And I would say after a year of mushing with Bob, mm-hmm. I can – I could consider myself proficient. But before I ran with Bob, I was still an experienced novice Mm -hmm. and making my mistakes. Sure. Um, Nutrition, um, training, um, how to set up a dog yard so the dogs were always safe. Mm -hmm. Those types of things um, I learned while I was running dogs with Bob. Mm-hmm. And not that things didn't happen when Bob and I were running dogs because weird things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that 
if you team yourself up with a proficient musher, and it's just like in any world experience, if you mm -hmm. have a mentor, right. you're going to become proficient a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend that anybody that is excited about learning about dog sledding, find a mentor. Mm -hmm. Don't jump into it like I did, not knowing anything and just all of a sudden having a dog team. Right. Um, I would go out and experience dogs with somebody who is doing it who's already obsessed right and then work your way gradually into obsession <laughs> yeah for sure the uh so then the question again what what was the thrill is there many layers to the cake i'm sure but for uh, you what stood up stood out about the rest yeah i don't know it's like an onion it really is um there's a lot of layers to it but i don't know the very um the deepest thing is this primordial connection between me and a group of dogs mm -hmm. that allow us to do something that's ages old mm -hmm. and um, to do something that's pure. I mean, there's no smell of gasoline. Mm -hmm. There's very little noise. Right. Um, there, it's quiet, it's natural, it's mm -hmm. um, efficient. Right. It's just a really um, cool, natural thing. It's ages old. There's, um, I've, I've heard some people say in Alaska that there's um, archaeological information going back 10,000 years ago hmm. that show that. Uh, man and dogs had teamed together and possibly um, traveled through the uh, outdoors the way that we do with our dogs. Hmm. I could I could tie that into my mule deer hunting. When I'm going, I'm most excited. I'm most engaged when I'm hiking in somewhere with no boat, no four-wheeler, no nothing. Like I can get, yeah. I don't know, you're more connected. Like yeah. the, where we went just a couple of weeks ago, we were like 10 miles in and you could access that through with a boat along the river. And people say, why don't you just take a boat there? I don't know. Something about it is just eliminates the experience. But if I can just hike and put in the effort and you're, yeah, no engines, no nothing. You're just hiking you and your backpack and your rifle and your binoculars. Yeah. You're, you're way more connected. I, I, don't, but, I, I can't put words into it, but yeah. I think in that situation, you become a better hunter because of that connection. Yeah. Um, you're more tuned in to what you need to do to um, finish what you went there to do. Right. And I think that's the same thing with dog sledding, too. And it's a it's a lifestyle um, mm -hmm. to, to be a musher um, and to own a kennel of dogs. You have to be prepared to work every day. It's hard mm -hmm. work. Right. Uh, you have to be prepared to sacrifice other things. I love bow hunting. Yeah. Um, the other night, um, one of the students um, gave me a night off from running dogs and took a team out for mm -hmm. a 16 mile run. Hmm. And I decided that, boy, I better go out and cut some firewood. Mm -hmm. And as I'm driving down there, one of my blinds had a, uh, six pointer out there huh. <laughs> and i was thinking boy I, maybe i should have hunted tonight yeah but, yeah. but uh, i spent a lot of time doing dogs uh when i could be hunting fishing trapping um doing anything and, right uh, 
Um, I just uh, know how much that it means. If we're going to go racing a 300-mile race, those dogs have got to be conditioned and ready for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they're not, um, it's hard on the dogs. It's hard on you. It's embarrassing. It's, you know, you just got to be completely realistic about what you're doing with these dogs mm-hmm. and know that although they do this naturally, if you ask them to do it at a high level, you've got to make sure that they're prepared for it. Yeah. Just like anything. And you don't go out doing what you did mule deer hunting without some kind of physical preparation to make sure you can hike that 10 miles in. Yeah. No, year round we're getting ready for it. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. Huh. So has the dog sledding negatively impacted your life at all on a family or career perspective or anything? I, I don't think that it's negatively affected me. Um, there's times where my kids have said, man, if you didn't spend all your time and money doing dogs, you know, we could have done this or we could have done that. Mm-hmm. But whether that would have been more beneficial for my life or not, I, I can't say. And I don't think so. Yeah. Um, my kids were given the opportunity to learn um, everything that you can learn by dog sledding. I mean, you can learn leadership skills. You learn how to, um, make a plan and follow through. You mm-hmm. learn how to um, do things you have to do when you don't want to do them. Right. And I mean, there's just a lot of uh, really good life lessons that you can learn. And I think my son Roy probably spent the most time with me dog sledding. He ran mm-hmm. the um, the second, third, and fourth uh, copper dogs, sure. and he came in sixth seventh and ninth in those three years with Hmm. basically the same team when he came in sixth he was only 14 years old Hmm. and um he uh was a pretty mature young person Mm -hmm. at that time i think already um he actually uh was interviewed at that race by buck lavasser in Hmm. copper harbor sitting stump to stump and uh impressed buck with the uh adult type conversation that this 14 year old was bringing to the table Mm -hmm. and um so i think that you know roy might look back and and say well this was really hard on me but overall i think he'll tell you that it was a good experience that's going to help him in life overall yeah that personality to let yourself say hey i'm going to try dog sledding to now 30 years later you're still engaged in it to a high degree do you see that in other areas of your life boy i'm not sure if if it's exactly the same um i find myself trying to become 100 percent engaged in whatever's in front of me when i go to work i try and give my employer 110 mm-hmm. percent and um when i'm hanging out with my kids i try and give them 110 percent of my time when i'm hunting which i'm gonna get to take 10 days off here in the first week of hunting and go out and hunt mm-hmm. um, i'm gonna give that 110 percent right not necessarily just the hunt but the the whole ambiance of being at a youper camp mm-hmm. with my relatives and my sons right um, 
it's just that's another cool experience in itself yeah yeah i asked you about the negative side i've seen in my life where i could take some lessons from that of being engaged in what you're currently doing my mule deer obsession i live in the midwest i can go out there one or two weeks a year so i'll find myself where i should be engaged in what i'm doing but i'm thinking or researching or getting ready for the one or two weeks that happen in the fall yeah um so that's been a negative aspect for sure yeah i i find that sometimes i'm you know thinking about what needs to be done next yeah and it, it's not just in the dog sledding; it's in all aspects of my life because i stay really busy but definitely the dog sledding uh takes over a certain part of my brain mm-hmm. sometimes that should be functioning on other things i think you're right yeah yeah hmm. so still today you're still racing like last year you ran the yep. copper dog we ran the copper dog last year um in in the last three years, I've also been engaged in racing with the Mushing Club for Michigan Tech. So okay. where I used to go out with one team to the UP 200 or the Midnight Run and then to the Copper Dog, um, we were, were going to races with four teams mm-hmm. a lot of times. In the Copper Dog last year, uh, we had one of the students from the Mushing Club in the 150. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had two students in the 80. And two students in the 25. And then I also ran the 150. Yeah. And um, so uh, my racing is taken on a different kind of a tone where it's not just me, but I'm I'm working with the club and, and excited about getting them racing as well. Mm-hmm. And um, my I'm not trying to get anybody obsessed. I'm just trying to share something that I think is really pure and cool. Mm-hmm. and that you can learn a lot of life lessons from yeah. at a young age with uh, a bunch of young people. And I'll be truthful with you. I'm stealing their energy. I'm right. 61 years old, and and uh, as you get older, it gets harder physically and mentally to force yourself to get out there and do the things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'll, I'll say uh, truthfully that hanging out with these students from Michigan Tech in the mushing world has uh, just given me maybe renewed energy even. Right. You know? And so we will go racing again this year. Uh, we haven't ironed out all of the races, but it looks like we'll be going to the Bear Grease in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be a crew of uh, um, rookie racers going over to the Chiquamanon and Newberry. Mm-hmm. Um there's another race during that weekend that I think myself and another student are going to go out to some other students in Minnesota, uh, called the, um, the mail run. It's a run out in the boundary waters on the gunflint trail. Mm-hmm. And, um, then we'll, uh, run the UP 200 midnight run and then we'll finish up probably with the copper dog. Okay. Huh. Have you ever made it up to the Iditarod? Watch that. I have never been to the Iditarod. I did work for two years as a dog sled guide on a glacier for Mitch Seavey, hmm. um, who's a, a three-time champion, and his son Dallas Seavey last year became a five-time, the only five-time um, champion. Okay. And, um, um, uh, so 
I'd love to race it, but there's all kinds of hurdles to get over to get there. Yeah. Uh, four of the students from the mushing club went up and volunteered two years ago. Yeah. And they loved it. It was a great experience. They went up to a couple of different checkpoints, ended up in McGrath, and they were in charge of helping veterinarians take care of the dropped dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so throughout a race, uh, mushers determine that for one reason or another, this dog just is not, it, it's not beneficial for this dog to carry on. Mm-hmm. And so those dogs are left in the care of veterinarians at a checkpoint that um, check the dogs over, make sure they're okay, and then keep them in a safe um, environment until they can be flown back down to Anchorage where um, handlers are waiting for the dogs or sometimes the the women's prison facility, I think, takes hmm. care of them until people can reclaim them. Mm-hmm. And they've got fresh dogs waiting for them? or No. You, if you drop a dog, you carry on with the dogs you have left. Hmm. And so that that's the case in most uh, dog sled races. There are some races that are stage races, like the copper dog. Yeah. Um, the copper dog is actually a 10-dog pool. Yeah. And so you can start out with a maximum of 10 dogs, um, but you can just take eight dogs and keep the two dogs... Um, off to the side so you could put them in in the next leg and maybe Mm -hmm. rest two other dogs Mm -hmm. or at some point you just decide okay i've run with these eight dogs now i'm going to put in these two fresh dogs and carry on with 10 Mm -hmm. dogs Hmm. it just so however you want to use it you have to leave each checkpoint with seven dogs okay and um uh, with at least seven dogs yeah right you ever hear of uh type one and type two fun no type i don't know if this is a legitimate or a professional thing but type one is like a roller coaster oh it's it's fun in the moment but you never think about it again and type two is something that's typically not that fun in the moment uh and i'd put backpack hunting into that where sometimes it's grueling and it's you're cold and you're miserable and you got blisters or whatever but afterwards it gets more enjoyable looking back like it's more fun after the fact Mm -hmm. is that true of dog sled racing or what where would that fall well, I don't know. I guess some of it's got to fall right in the middle because there are dog sled runs that I'm on where I am just having a blast. I right. mean, it's just uh, a technical trail, for instance, where the dogs are really cruising through a wooded trail that's kind of narrow. There's trees involved, ups and downs and corners and just... Um, maneuvering your sled through there with an excited team sometimes is really challenging and a lot of fun mm-hmm. um, i guess that could turn to not so much fun you know if you fall down and get dragged for a while or you blast into a tree with your sled and you have to limp into the checkpoint with a um, mm-hmm. with a wounded sled right um and then there's times when you're out there uh, you always try and be prepared as far as clothing for the weather and stuff like that. But there've been times where I've uh, overworked myself with too many clothes on and gotten sweated up and then um, ended up real cold and miserable. And mm-hmm. so uh, there's been those type two moments as well. But when you look back at it and you say, well, I'll give you a, an example. My son Roy and I were training uh, the first year I ran the, uh, our top team from our kennel and the copper dog and placed fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy 
had been for two years training all of our young dogs and had raced as a 13-year-old in the midnight run um, with a team of dogs that were all yearlings except for one of his leaders was a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And for him to have made it through that 100-mile race with that young team, all of them happy and healthy, was to me a major accomplishment at 13 years old. Mm-hmm. He finished last and got the Red Lantern. So, of course, for him, it was depressing because right. he wanted to finish farther up. Uh, but so the next year I thought, he's been working so hard. He's really a natural at it. He's got a great control over the dogs. All the dogs listen to him just like they listen to me. Um, I was going to let him run the copper dog with our top team. And so he needed to get out there and run those dogs for a few times. Um, And so we were out on one of those runs. I was taking the B team and he was running the A team. And uh, there was a turn before the real turn that was disguised as the real turn. And he took that one instead. It turned out to be a stub road. Hmm. And um, I'm at the turn waiting for him to catch up just to make sure. Because I knew it was a possibility that he might end up up that road. And uh, sure enough, he didn't show up behind me. And eventually I hear his dog screaming, uh, which is what they do when they want to go. And so I knew that Roy had stopped for some reason. And his dogs were just uh, barking and barking, barking. And I could tell they were up that road. And so what had happened is Roy got to the end of that road and he got dragged into the woods off the stub road onto a skitter trail mm-hmm. and had to turn his very excited 10 dog team around. And at this time, I think he's got to be all about 150 pounds at mm-hmm. the most. Right. And so these dogs are kind of having their way with him. And uh, he gets his snow hook in, goes and drags the dogs around and they get their new direction and they take off and that sled whips around and he's hanging on to it for everything he's got and he gets Hmm. thrown down on the ground and dragged and uh, um, he lost his gloves because he had taken his gloves off to untangle the dogs and then the sled took off again the dogs took off the snow hook popped out and so now he's got no gloves Mm -hmm. and then he falls down and a tree rips his boot off. Mm. So now he's got no gloves, one boot. <laughs> it's like 10 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and he finally shows up behind me out on the road. Actually, I think I had turned around and started heading down the trail to see if I could help him. And uh, here he comes. And uh, so I got my team turned around, asked him how he's doing. He's like, well, he's cold. He's got no gloves. He's missing a boot. And so I took my outer jacket off. <laughs> And I had him step through the sleeve and turned it up around and tied my jacket around and made a a quickie moccasin Uh out of my uh, outer jacket for a boot. And then I gave him my spare gloves and uh, cautioned him about making sure he always had a spare pair of gloves with him in the future. Right. (laughs) And uh, we ran the five miles that we had left home. And by the time he got home, just riding the dog sled he had warmed up again yeah um, but it was a pretty harrowing experience for a 14 year old you yeah. lose your gloves you lose your boot um and uh, you're driving a top high performance team um then he recovered from that and finished sixth place in the race a week later hmm. um, so it's pretty pretty cool 
right? We're coming up on the end of our time here. Okay. <laughs> is are you so you're engaged with the tech mushing club? Yes. Do you, is there any way somebody else could get involved or come visit with you and check it out if they wanted to? Absolutely. I'm open to anybody contacting me and coming out. Uh, my business is called Otter River Sled Dog Training Center and Wilderness Adventures. You can find me on Facebook. Yeah. And um, what I do to support my kennel, um, because it costs a lot of money to feed that many dogs, yeah. um, the veterinary care and all that, I do tours, and so we're listed on the Keweenaw Tourism website and on Pure Michigan as a tour group, hmm. and I have people come out in groups, and I teach them how to dog sled. I put hmm. them out on a sled so that they can see what it's really like to dog sled. Now, if they're just totally uncomfortable with that, we give them a ride. Mm -hmm. Some people are just happy going for a ride on a dog sled, but most people really want to see what it's like to you know, be able to have a dog team out in front of them and, and try and control that sled. And sometimes it goes really good and sometimes it goes a little awry, but I set it up so that it's a safe environment. Yeah. Uh, we keep a snowmobile running out there to make sure that uh, nobody gets into trouble. And uh, it's on enclosed trails on my property for the most part. Hmm. And, um, uh, and then uh, people pay for that experience and keep our kennel running and i really appreciate that support from people but people go away thanking me for that experience and you know i get hugs and told how it's the coolest thing they've ever done and huh. i would definitely recommend people come out and check it out um, if you can't afford to pay me for it i'm happy to just let you experience it sure um, i'm not all about the money mm -hmm. yeah well i appreciate it Thanks, yeah. Tom. We have to do this again. Right. This was too quick. Yeah, th thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>